Hi, and welcome to the Loka Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Mukherjee. On this episode, I talk to Chanchal Chatterjee, who leads a team as a machine learning specialist at Google. This is a great episode for anyone that wants to get a primer on how machine learning is being used, particularly in the financial services industry. We cover a lot of different use cases for machine learning, including fraud, risk, and for those who really want to get into deep dive into ML, model explainability. Google is clearly a thought leader in really applying ML to problems, and this episode covers a lot of Google's tools in helping in that, including TensorFlow and covering newer ideas like AutoML. Enjoy. All right, so I'm here with my guest, and first things first, I'd like him to go ahead and introduce himself. Hi, my name is Chanchal Chatterjee. I'm a machine learning specialist at Google Cloud. My job is to talk to customers, take their business problems to machine learning problems, and lead a team to execute on these machine learning problems and create solutions. Well, terrific. Chanchal, thanks so much for taking the time. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. The first thing I'd love to understand is, you know, there's so many different facets of computer science that one could study. For you, when was your first introduction to this world of machine learning and what started to make you kind of gravitate towards that? Yeah, I did machine learning a long time ago when machine learning was not the hardest thing to do. The reason I did machine learning is because I was trying to solve a optical character recognition problem, and I didn't know exactly how to solve the problem by using vision. Every character was slightly different. I went to Purdue University, where I met my professor, who was a old-time friend, and I said, how can I solve this problem where you have numerous characters coming through and they are constantly changing? And so we took the problem up as an adaptive learning problem, and we found out that the solution wasn't very interesting. So I said, we should solve some more interesting problems, like trying to find more important features out of characters or any other signals, voice signals. And that's how I embarked on the journey of machine learning. That was the beginning. Looking for a more interesting problem to solve. (laughs) (laughs) That's always a good bet. One of the things that really fascinated me about you was kind of how you had deep dived and become a specialist in use cases, you know, within, among other things, but within the financial services vertical. And I thought what we could spend the balance of our time doing is kind of talking through as much time as we have for a lot of these use cases. You know, it's dealer's choice. So why don't you, why don't we pick out the first one? So financial services, we have many, many machine learning problems. And at Google, we see hundreds of these problems. All the top 100 banks are our customers. In order to categorize them into multiple different categories, it would be too hard to do. But at a high level, financial fraud is a very big area of interest. Next one is risk, how to mitigate risk and how to quantify risks as margins or interest rates. There are other areas like how to redact sensitive data so that no sensitive data lands in any public place, especially the cloud. The other area is conversational agents. Google is big on conversational agents. We have Google Home, which is very popular. So we also have a product on the cloud called Dialogflow.ai. So that's another topic. Then Google has been doing ads and recommendations for 20 years. So we have recommendation as another solution. Search will be another 
And one of the big areas that is of great interest to me is model explainability, which is very important from consumer standpoint, from regulator standpoint, from developer standpoint, from management standpoint. So that's another area of great interest, forecasting, user behavior anomaly, smart ticketing, you name it, there's hundreds of applications. So all of that's really fascinating. So if you were a beginner and trying to understand where to start in financial services, in applying, specifically applying machine learning in that industry, like which one of these use cases would you pick to sort of walk through as an example of how, so how to it, apply it? It all depends. Uh, you start from the business first. Which are the business, which are the most important from the business standpoint? We don't start from the technology and then we convert that to technological problems. So, for example, from the business side, fraud is more a preventive mechanism. That is where you prevent losses of money, whereas a risk or how to charge more margin Mm -hmm. or interest is more of a revenue generating solution. So I would guess from a very layman's point of view, the revenue generation will be very important from the bottom line perspective or the top line perspective for any business entity. However, compliance is very important in the financial services because you can incur terrible fines. So financial fraud and similar and model explanation or regulator-based model explanation will be very important from loss prevention standpoints. Those would be the two top categories in my mind. Yeah. So things that are kind of helping you on the revenue, you know, revenue increasing side, and then things that are helping you try to limit your losses. Limit losses, correct. On the expense side of the the equation. Let's take fraud, for example. So at a high level, generically, because every bank is going to be set up differently. But if we just take a generic kind of use case, like what are the inputs that are being fed into kind of a machine learning construct? And then what, like, how is that like playing out? So there are multiple types of fraud. There's e-business and e-banking fraud, which is very transactional based. Then you have credit card fraud, which is also very transactional based. So this online e-business as well as credit card are the two top categories of fraud. The other is money laundering and anti-money laundering, of course. That's the other category, which is very important. I'd put fraud and anti-money laundering as two separate categories. And within fraud, you have banking, you have credit card, you have check fraud, you have ATM image fraud, and so on and so forth. So let's look at the transactional fraud, which is banking and the credit card. These are actually very complex problems to solve because you have real-time transactions from the time a credit card is swapped to the time when the fraud is detected will have to be done in far less than a second. And there are a lot of bottlenecks in the system. There could be a transaction server that is very slow, that could be old. So the whole machine learning problem becomes a very short latency problem to solve, like 25 milliseconds. So some of these are challenges. Presumably the ML building blocks that are present today that were not available maybe five or six years ago. So so the ML building block, what is great about the cloud-based machine learning solutions is that we have the entire ML infrastructure, what we call the ML platform. It is very hard and complex to build ML platforms. I have done that many times in my career, and you only build bits and pieces. In order to build an ML solution, you have to build the entire ecosystem. And a machine learning code, it has been famously published by some Googlers that machine learning code is only 10% or 5% of the entire problem. 
The other issues that you have to worry about in machine learning is how to ingest the data, both real-time and stored data, how to pre-process the data, how to extract the features, how to do continuous training, how do you orchestrate the training, because data is what we call non-stationary, which means that your consumer base today and tomorrow will be very different. The transactions today and tomorrow, so it is very time-sensitive changes. You cannot build a model and use it forever. You have to constantly train, sometimes hourly, daily. And therefore, you need an infrastructure which has to do this whole training orchestration. Then you have to store these models, which is a model repository. It has to be properly versioned. It has to be meta-tagged. Then you also have to have a proper serving infrastructure so that you can serve the right model. If you are doing a credit card transaction versus e-banking versus with a mobile or a website might have different models. And therefore you need a proper intelligence serving infrastructure, monitoring. So there are lots of pieces and it's very difficult to build all these pieces which already has been done by Google in the cloud. Yeah, so there's no need to reinvent the wheel and, and yes, make, absolutely. make these yourself. So you, it just dawned on me that you said something very interesting when you were talking about just generically the example of credit card fraud, for example. Right. Credit cards have been around for decades and decades and decades. Databases that are storing credit card transactions have also been around, as, say, as old as Oracle, the company. What's an example of either a, a, a hardware or software-based building block, ML building block that came onto the market you know, from Google that allowed one to take this transactional data that has been on kind of these older systems and start to do recommendations about fraud in the sub-second category that wasn't possible, I don't know, five or 10 years ago? Yeah, so there are three things. The availability of large volumes of data from multiple sources. So data was very fragmented before. Mm -hmm. So now we have the ability to consolidate data with similar type of sources. So there are basically three types of data. One is real-time data, which is streaming data. And that can be the transactions, that can be clickstream, the app and web logs. So there are lots of streaming data. You can mix with that social media data, for example, because that's like I could be saying that I'm on vacation, but I'm posting out there in Twitter that I'm having fun in the hills. So there's mm -hmm. social media data, which can also reveal a lot right. about your behavior. So the thing is, then there is the second category of data, which is batch data. Uh, the batch data would be things like in a banking context, like accounts, like marketing data, order management. So those are batch data. Then you also have repository data, which are typically stored in CRM systems or enterprise data warehouses. It is a lot easier today to have all this data in a similar source. For example, Google Cloud offers BigQuery, which is a data warehouse, which is an incredible place to store all your warehouse data and batch data in one place and mm -hmm. a simple query to extract that. You can pull streaming data with Kafka or PubSub or any other public sources. So there's a lot of technical advances that has happened, which has made data easy to access. The second big innovation we have done is algorithms. The benefit there is that before it was very difficult to take multiple types of data and build algorithms that will actually find insightful features. So people used to spend very well-trained PhDs used to go in and do feature engineering, which is to look at this huge volumes of data and find which features are important. Now, the advent of neural networks has made it very easy to extract those features. So that's the second innovation that has happened. And the third big innovation is the compute. 
That is, we have so much of compute power with the GPUs, with the TPUs, and the very powerful processors from Intel and AMD and all these companies that we can now process huge amounts of data in a short amount of time. So these are the three pillars that have really propelled machine learning from when I did my PhD till today. We used to do machine learning models then uh, with neural networks, but it was so hard to either build or to deploy. Now it's so much easier. Yeah, and I'm guessing back then you were doing it on, on SunSpark workstations? Yeah, yeah, but most of the uh, highest powered processor right after my PhD was 550 megahertz processors. So those were Im- immensely underpowered. But is this interesting? Because I mean, a lot of these algorithms that are used today have been around for decades, yes. but they just weren't. Yes. You couldn't get the full power out of them. Uh, also, but it's not entirely true because, yes, the algorithms had like convolutional networks were discovered 20, 30 years ago, but they were never effectively used for face recognition, for example. So the use of the data and also some innovations have happened in those algorithms too, which has really enhanced the ability to increase the performance. I was looking, following some of the historical performances that we had. Five years ago, doing a text recognition, a human being is generally 3% of the times you make a mistake. Machines were like almost 10 or 5 5 to 10% times we made a mistake. Today, a lot of the text recognition solutions that Google produces or many other companies produce can do 1% or less, and they're trying to reduce it down to 0.1. So from a place where we were far worse than humans, mm-hmm. now we are better than humans. It's not entirely because of compute. It's a lot of algorithmic innovations have happened. It's pretty exciting to see that rate of innovation that's going on right now. Let's talk about some of these building blocks, just for my listeners, just to give them more context, because they come up a lot, and maybe you could give kind of a layman's explanation of some of these things. So let's TensorFlow. And just purely from a user standpoint, like, how does that building block fit into, like, say, fit into something like fraud? TensorFlow is a machine learning platform. It is a way by which you can write complex machine learning code in a simple way. There is a construct on top of TensorFlow called Keras. Keras is also owned by Google. So it is basically simplifies the complexity of TensorFlow so that you can write machine learning code. Back when I did my PhD in 1996, in order to build a decision tree, we had to take the C 4.4 library of machine learning of decision tree. You had to go hours and hours, figure out what function to call for each of these steps. And Mm -hmm. it was very difficult. It took you days, if not weeks, to implement. Today, with Keras running on, with scikit-learn, for example, which is another package, you can do decision tree in one line. Now, what did TensorFlow do? TensorFlow is immensely useful to do complex deep learning. Mm -hmm. To do a neural network, which was so complex 10, 20 years ago, even five years ago to build those. Today, with Keras, in five lines of code, you can build a very complex deep learning network. And you can train your machine learning models and you can run your machine learning it will be a very short snippet of code. Wow. It just allows you to accelerate your progress in those Absolutely. Models. It's so easy to build. 
and therefore it is so easy to experiment. And TensorFlow within Cloud Machine Learning Engine has many, many very exciting components. One of the components I want to particularly speak about is called hyperparameter tuning. So when you build a complex machine learning model, it has many, many parameters, like how many layers of the uh, neural network should you have, how many nodes, what are the different activation functions, which are different functions in order to change the output. So you could come up with thousands, if not millions, of these different parameters. How do you change them? In this complex parameter space, to find the optimum combination is very difficult, and that's what hyperparameter tuning does. It's a very complex algorithm Google invented, partly open-sourced, but it's available in the cloud in order to do that. And in the spirit of making it easy to experiment, maybe this doesn't fit perfectly, but tell us a little bit about what the promise of AutoML holds. Yes, so um, there are three ways of doing machine learning on the Google Cloud. One is you can build machine learning solutions from scratch. We call it your data, your model, you mm -hmm. being the customer. You bring in your data, you bring in your data scientists, we'll basically provide you the AI infrastructure for you to build the models. The second one is AutoML. There, you bring in your data, we provide you the models. These are predefined models, not trained models. So you bring in your data and you can train it with our models. So we bring in all our experience in order to create these models for you. The third one is called APIs. API is where we have pre-trained models. You bring in your data and the models are already trained and you can use them as is. So that's the beauty of using machine learning on the cloud because you can now use any of these three different combinations in order to build your model from very simple to very complex. That makes a lot of sense. And I think people are pretty excited about the possibilities of that with what they can now do in a much shorter period of time thanks to AutoML. One of the things you touched on earlier was there are many aspects of deploying a machine learning solution. And Correct. one aspect of it is the sort of data ingestion process, stage. Right. I mean, right. it's, it's like table stakes. You must do this. You, what, what else? Absolutely. So what, talk to me a little bit about the challenges in that and some of the building blocks or things that you've seen that have uh, helped Correct. that challenge. So in the financial services industry, a lot of the confidential and proprietary data resides on-prem. So bringing it to the cloud is always a challenge because there's a lot of personalized data there. So you need to de-ID those data, redact the sensitive content. We don't want any of that on the cloud. So that is obviously a challenge. We have an API called the DLP API, which allows you to basically redact the data. You can also use third-party solutions in order to redact sensitive content. That's the first challenge. The second challenge you have is the multiple sources of data. For example, in financial services, you might have a fraud repository. You might have some other system where you have stored like a Hadoop repository. So you might have 10 different repositories in, in your bank, which is different. So consolidating and aggregating all of that towards the cloud is a lot of different types of ETL work and involved in getting that data over to the cloud. Even after you get the data to the cloud, it is also very complex to pre-process the data so that you can create a single source from which you can build the fraud. And just pausing for a sec, could you talk a little bit about what would be an example of pre-processing and why that's important? Pre-processing is very important. For example, if I am doing a transaction today, 
I typically withdraw $100 from the bank, and all of a sudden, one day, I withdrew $10,000. So how would you know that the $10,000 is an anomaly? You need to know the average transaction for last 30 days. The average transaction for last 30 days compared to the current transaction is what we call a feature. And that average transaction for last 30 days will be the necessary component to extract the feature. So that's what you need to pre-process the data in order to extract that feature, for example. Again, the, the, the sort of the cloud platform is what allows for a lot of that ingestion and pre-processing to happen Correct. much more easily today than would have been possible. Correct. Before. And can be stored perpetually. For example, you can offline create the last 30 days average transaction on a customer by customer basis. And you can keep it stored in your internal repository so that you can create the features on the fly. This is just an example of one feature. You can do hundreds of features like this. And all of those have to be pre-processed. A new customer comes in and all of a sudden a new feature vector has to be created for that customer. Yeah, so and all of that becomes a lot easier to do once you've kind of got that base going in the, in the, Correct. At the cloud level. And for that, you need an automatic orchestration platform. These are not done manually. These are all done automatically. As a new data point comes in or a new customer comes in, so there has to be a set of triggers based on the amount of data, type of users coming in, type of consumers coming in. So you'll have to constantly have an internal logic in order to create these things and create and initiate the training process. So on that, on the training process, one of the things you talked about earlier was the need for a model repository. Today, what have you seen as being effective in monitoring models once they're deployed? Correct. So we have multiple ways of monitoring the whole model. We have what is called TensorBoard, which is a great way of visualizing the model training process and the prediction process. In terms of the internals of the training, the collecting, the analytics, we have what is called stack. The stack driver basically collects the analytics of how the CPU, GPU, all that consumption is going. The other awesome thing that uh, we should mention is TPUs, besides GPUs. That is, I have done projects in which I've seen TPUs have given 3x the advantage in cost and 3x the advantage in uh, processing. We were building a very large model a very large, complex neural network model. And the data was also very large. It was 3D volumetric data. Uh, the, with the data and model, we couldn't do much of training after that with the GPU. When we moved to the TPU, we could get the what we call a batch size, that mm -hmm. is a batch of 16 into the memory in order to make it work. So I've seen myself that the TPUs have been very beneficial. And when you said the 3x advantage, was that over GPUs or just traditional over CPUs? Over GPUs. Over yes. GPUs. Yeah, I saw that in one of the projects. I, I, we don't want to compare GPUs to GPUs, but I'm just telling you, we are still a big user of GPUs. We love sure. NVIDIA and we work with them. We want a lot of GPUs to be on the cloud. But in this one example, I've seen that we got 3x advantage in price and 3x advantage in speed. That's pretty compelling. Let's do an overview and then maybe drill down a little bit deeper into the notion of conversational agents. Maybe kick us off with like, what is a conversational agent and then how, how is that 
applicable and applied in the, say, the financial services use cases? Absolutely. So conversational agents are very helpful in call center management. So we also have a complete product, which is called conversational AI, which is a end-to-end conversational agent management all the way from input to fulfillment. But there is a subset of that, which is called Dialogflow.ai. Dialogflow is a customized solution that we have built in order to build chatbot agents. So this is where we can do delightful and natural conversational experiences. The key component of that is that you have agents for different questions that uh, a person could ask. We train those agents with different types of utterances because the same question can be asked in many different ways. And then on the fulfillment side, we can integrate with messaging service, with phones, with Google Home, and multiple type of output. And those are called fulfillment. The other big thing is that it has to support multiple types of languages. Mm -hmm. We have at least 30 supported languages. You also need to have what you call session flow visualization so that you can see how the sessions are happening. And it also helps to have pre-built agents, like asking your name is very common in a lot of these. So there are pre-built agents, like we have many pre-built agents, at least 30, maybe more, a lot more. Again, at a, at a high level, how does the training of the conversational agent process happen? What, what is it's it? very simple, actually. You oh, okay. take the multiple types of utterances, you identify an agent for each different question, and you take the utterances and you train the agent for, with those utterances. It's very fast and very simple. Wow. The complexity is in the fulfillment side. Got it. Let's look at recommendation. Again, what is it at a high level and how could we apply So in the financial services, one of the biggest things is portfolio management, wealth management. These are instances where you want to have a personalized service. So like when you create a automatic trading platform or mm-hmm. an automatic portfolio management platform like Wealthfront, then you do need to have a personalized service. So given a person's risk appetite, their point in life and income and so on and so forth, you can have a combination of equities or bonds or the two major types of agents. And then you can create a sort of a pyramid of what you need to invest in or to get the return that you want. So this is an example of a personalized recommendation. Google has been doing recommendation for a lot of years. And we have open sourced many recommendation solutions. So, for example, historically, we have done very mature products like Siebel, factorization machine, distribution, distributed walls. If you search for Google Cloud walls, you'll find the open source code for that. We also have later innovations like wide and deep learning, brain-based watch recommendation, deep retrieval. And then most of the ahead of curve Uh, recommendation engines that we have now are time delta sequence modeling, reinforcement learning. This is where you are having dealing with non-stationary data, data that is changing so that you can time sequence. Reinforcement learning is an active learning method. So these are all new generation of learning methods. So Google has also been using recommendation in a lot of our products like search apps, maps, videos, music, and so on and so forth. And so we have come up with, uh, we have two types of solutions. One is the recommendation.ai, which is an auto ML solution. It's a retail centric product. 
and it has been very beneficial in terms of increasing the click-through rate, customer adoption, which is also known as CVR, revenue generation, and so on and so forth. But the other one is that we have open source product like the distributed walls algorithm, matrix factorization that you can download the code or you can just go to your cloud account and use it as is. I could see how that got its start more in the e-commerce retail world because people could sort of understand like, People like Amazon and so forth had made that very famous. If you know, you read these books, you might read these books. But right. you, can, you can apply that same principle to. Yes. So there is a uh, th- that concept of recommendation comes from basically you have a set of users and you have a set of products mm-hmm. and you have a set of ratings, and then so you take the users' products and the ratings and you match and create a new product. There are some very interesting variations of that. Uh, there is one that I have seen is where you do editorial recommendations. So a big publishing house, they have editors as your customer. They want to know how an editor should recommend a content hmm. to the users. Hmm. So that's a completely different model. There you don't have the users and products and ratings in between. Your user is the editor and the products is all your content. So that becomes slightly different variations. So the same algorithm cannot be used there. But all I'm saying is that the recommendations can have separate specialization. Yeah, I can see how that could be very powerful. Yeah, the mind blows at the possibilities on that front. Yeah, and the second one is very interesting because you're creating trends. Right. Like in journalism, you could create a new trend. That's pretty wild. Let's talk about one thing that I think is more near and dear to your heart, model explainability. What is that and, and how can so, we use that? So in the banking sector, model explainability is very, very useful in many sectors like credit lending, transaction fraud, anti-money laundering, blah, blah, blah. But uh, the key thing to understand is model explainability is not a monolithic thing. You have multiple audiences. You have the developers as the audience, which is how most developers view model explainability, how to build better models, better yeah. models. So we look at the models, we look at its output, what features went into it mm-hmm. so that we can enhance those features and build another model and iterate through that process. The second audience for model explainability is the consumers. You go to the bank and you ask for a loan of 250K and you only get 200K or you get denied. So the person says, why did my loan get denied? You cannot just say it is because the model came up with it. Right. So you have to give the reasons. These right. are the reasons. Your income wasn't sufficient or you had too much loan or whatever. And you have to come up with that from the model itself. The third audience is regulators. Regulators want to do model explainability so that to see that you comply to regulations. And the fourth audience is the management. I'll only address the first three. Each of them have different goals. So engineers want to produce better models. Consumers want to produce better analysis, want to see better analysis. So engineers, models, consumers analysis, regulators reports. So each of them have different end results. End result using the same basic principle. So as you look forward into 2020 and you know, you're spending all this time in financial services and talking about these different things, which of these types of applications are you thinking is still early days and you know, there's going to be significant uptake in the year ahead more than others? Any jump out at you as kind of being, you know, just getting more traction for whatever reason? The, you mean the use cases? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so I think that a lot of the use cases we talked about will be very, very useful in the financial services and other services too. 
I view risk or margin prediction going to be a huge topic of discussion because it's a revenue generator thing. And therefore, how do you appropriately choose the margin in any type of lending situation? So I think that's a big topic of discussion. If you can predict how a stock is going to do, you could charge appropriate amount of margin. And if you can explain that well to your customer, I think you can make a lot of money out of that. And then again, even simple things like hedge funds and others, if you could predict which stocks are going to do better, then that would be a big area in which you could invest. And a stock prediction is not just an individual matter. It's also a societal matter, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of the time. I mean, who knew Snapchat will be so big, right? So to understand how the underpinning of the society that led to some of the successes mm-hmm. are also very difficult machine learning problems to solve. It's interesting. So if you, if you think about the financial services world and all these different use cases within them, take an extreme example. Let's say that next year was a super down economy year and, and the market takes a 20% or bigger a bigger crash. I'm just saying. Great year for short trading. <laughs> so if you could predict that accurately, you can still make a lot of money in yeah. doing hard to borrow securities, how to find which list will go down the most. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fa- famously, some people, I think, I think they made some Hollywood movies out of uh, people doing exactly that in the big short in yeah. 2008 for those reasons. So who knows? Maybe there's an opportunity there. Chanchal, I feel like I've barred you for a long time and I really appreciate it, but this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so very much. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate it.